0: Okay, so this is Church History 201, Session 3. In my notes, I have revised schedule. And what I mean by that is simply that um, we actually didn't get very far in terms of staying on schedule. And I've kind of, you know, I hadn't done this class before and I actually haven't actually taught at a university for about four years. So... You know, i have trying to get this class to fit the format of how we do the systematic theology class, and it's kind of turned out that it's proved to be sort of impossible. So I've been kind of brainstorming how to do this better. So what we'll do in the future is we'll actually have two sessions for every time the theology class has a session. There won't be any additional reading, uh, and you know, the reading only works out to nine pages a week, so that's really easy. The you know, we're because I don't want to grade a ton of papers, and even when we have Deanna full time on staff, I don't want her having to grade a ton of papers. We're gonna to continue to have just a very small amount of IDs because I just want to make sure you kind of know how to think that way. The the um so um I may kind of be taking an unofficial survey, remind me at the end of class today to see how many people would be willing to attend two lectures for every eight weeks. So that means Church History 201 would meet twice instead of once in between each meeting of the theology class on a Sunday afternoon. And then the Church History 202 with the presentations would still meet once. But that, because it, the truth is I just can't cover the material in the book um, adequately enough. And I'm not going to try to cover everything. Uh, I'm just going to try to hit some highlights. You have the book. I'm trying to help you kind of know what to look for in the book. And um, if you remember, we made the lectures, uh, you know, that are from uh, Dr., what's his name? Fortson, Donald Fortson from Reformed Theological Seminary. His lectures are optional, but I would tell you, I have listened to every one of them multiple, multiple times. Like I'm listening five or six times per lecture because I, you know, listen to them while I'm sleeping in the mornings. After Catherine goes to work, I put them on and... Sometimes I'm awake, sometimes I'm asleep. When you're old, you don't sleep that well. Uh, so um, I'm listening to them when I lift weights, when I do my stretching, crunch-ups. Uh, they're good. They're very good. So, you know, again, they're optional, but I would really encourage you to, if you drive in a car or if you take showers, hope, hope some of you shower or, or baths or something. Uh, you know, there's times when you can't read. I, you know, it's really hard to read in the shower. <laughs> you know, the books get all wet, so that's. I have speakers above my shower, so I can listen to lectures while I'm showering. So, try to find a way to listen to the lectures. They are really good. What I'm going to start with today is an overview of, and, and also, by the way, one more little adjustment. You know, I was trying to work it out so we'd have about the same number of chapters each session. But the truth is where he draws the breaks, they make a lot of sense. And so what he's doing is he's choosing some time periods and then within that time period, he's hitting four, five, six, or even sometimes seven major developments that that in some cases went throughout the whole time period. So he's tracing this idea for 200 years and this idea for 200 years and so forth. So as we read... Yeah, you know what? I have revised schedule as we reorganize this, and I'm gonna. Uh, I had kind of anticipated improving the class the next time, but it's proved that it's kind of necessary to improve it on the fly as we go. So what we're probably going to do is follow more his chapter breaks in the book. So today I'm going to try to do chapters three through eight because that's the. Uh, um, that covers uh, 70 A.D. through 312 A.D., and he calls it the Age of Catholic Christianity. So by way of review, what we covered before, we did uh, one or two sessions that were introductory to the class, uh, so in session 1A and 1B, and we did a session 2. From now on, we're going to have like 4A and 4B we're going to, if you're willing to, I'm going to talk to people about whether they're willing to attend two lectures, same reading, same assignments otherwise. But um, we covered in the session two, we covered chapter 47, the, the coming of global Christianity, because I kind of wanted to start with like, where is Christianity at now? And where are we going to end up in, on this 2,000 year journey? And I think it's because a big part of what Grace Christian Fellowship is about is um, there's, there's a, a verse that says the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Uh, in the book of Acts, summarizing, it talks about how David served the purposes of God in his generation. One of the reasons we have to not only know thoroughly biblical studies and what we call... Um, biblical theology then historical theology and systematic theology. The reason we need to take all three of those disciplines and combine them together with church history and historical theology and church history have a lot of overlap. But the reason we need to do that is we kind of need to figure out where are we in the eternal purposes of God and how can we uh, as members of his church build the kinds of churches and the kinds of teams that can take our one shot in life to impact the world for Christ. Because the only reason they even be on this planet is to love God. Uh, but you could actually just go to heaven if that was the only goal. You know, we could have altar calls and then shoot everyone who comes forward, no backsliders. <laughs> but the, the other purpose is, as Paul says in Philippians 3, that he pressed forward into the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that he might apprehend that for which God apprehended him. And so uh, you'll never find your calling or your purpose until you get deeply involved in in your local church because calling and purpose is always a corporate church thing. The reason people are having so much trouble and so susceptible to narcissistic visions of my this, my ministry, and my this and that and that is because uh, it... We we are living in what they call radically individualistic Christianity. Once you begin to see the body of Christ the way God sees it, and see covenant community and so forth, we have a calling together. And I want to walk in a lifetime journey with a bunch of people that are pursuing the same calling to extend the kingdom of God into all seven spheres of the kingdom of God in our geographical location, but then like Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, after God builds a model pattern Christian community uh, here, we want to multiply it in other places. Once the prototype is right, then then it can start to be reproduced. And, uh, you know, our hope is to have... uh, at least three to four churches in between Columbus and Dayton. And to use the, the, the leaders that are coming out of those churches, uh, you know, takes these days takes, oh, well, three to, to eight or nine years to really help a person become solid and, and get the things out of their life that would, would undermine their ministry and so forth in the, in the end. And uh, once we, you know, we want to use those churches to produce the quality leaders, to be able to send teams to India and to Africa and other places like that. So, that's why we looked at chapter 47 first. And we made some comparisons to the, you know, what they call the global south, which he admits and everyone admits that talks about this, that it's misnamed because... It apply. It, it's you know God is moving this way in Central America, South America, all through Africa. Those are global South, Australia, Southeast Asia, and so forth. But China's not exactly the global South, and God's expanding in China, Singapore. That's not exactly the global South, although it's a little South. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not like frozen tundra North, <laughs> but uh, you don't have snow there, so I guess it's some somewhat South. But it's no, well north of the equator. That's, you know, it's not really south of the equator. Um, is that correct? Singapore is north of the equator, right? Okay. So, all right, so it's sort of the global middle. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and um, I, I just want to remind us, the one comparison that he makes really well is that the places where Christianity is growing leaps and bounds It's mostly Pentecostal and Charismatic types of Christianity. And it's mostly a mindset that the book of Acts and the the Gospels are a description of how Christianity is and should be. Which really fits well with good theology, because uh, any good theology, even if you're not thinking about the gifts of the Spirit or the power of God or anything, really realizes that ours is a God of history our God had an eternal sovereign decree and he created the time-space continuum. He created the earth for his eternal purposes, right? And so those purposes are unfolding in time, but that's why both covenants start with the historical books. Most uh, Bibles will call Joshua through Esther the 12 historical books, but they're actually the 12 other historical books, because Genesis through Deuteronomy are the five foundational historical books of the Old Testament, followed by 12 other historical books that trace the history of God's workings with mankind from creation until uh, after the captivities. You know, the first couple of dis- captivities, both the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, and the re- the uh, Renewal, uh, you know, the post-Babylonian captivity um, rebuilding of Nehemiah and Ezra and so forth. Then the New Testament picks up with history. Four historical biographies of our Lord Jesus Christ, followed by one historical account of the early church. And there's a reason why the church fathers put those books first. Because history is always foundational. So really, uh, the global South Christians are, uh, which is ironic since there's not enough teaching of theology and history and so forth, that there's anything that the moves of God in, in all these places we're talking about need um, in terms of, um, so pause it on, Vesh. I got Let's get started with today. I, before, what we're going to do is I'm going to do as much as I can to review the summaries of chapters 3 through 8 that are in your notebook today. Before I do, I want to give you some perspective on chapters 3 through 8. Okay, so, uh, his t- timeline is, um, yeah, let me just use your book. His timeline Can I take this out? It's page 87. Write it down somewhere. Because I'm going to stick it in the table of contents. All right. So what he did was his first section of the book, we only covered chapter 1. You're on your own for chapter 2. It was called The Age of Jesus and the Apostles. From I, I put in my notes 4 B.C. He put 6 B.C. No one knows whether Jesus was born in 6 B.C. or 4 B.C. Uh, he clearly was not born in 0 A.D. Uh, that's just what they thought back when they set the calendar in the first few centuries. So, um, the you know, the chapter 1 kind of deals with an overview of the Gospels, and chapter 2 is kind of an overview of the Gospels in the book of Acts. And, you know, if there's any strong point of our church, hopefully that's it. So we're... Um, those he took us up to 70 A.D., and he calls those uh, the age of Jesus and the apostle. Then from the 70 A.D. to 312 A.D., he calls it the age of Catholic Christianity. And I'm going to give us here an introduction to that age and what's important in that age. And he has chosen, uh, if you take all the important things of that age, he has a chapter on each one of them. Then the age of the Christian Empire from 312 to 590 is basically after the conversion of Constantine. So let let me just give you a quick timeline. In 70 AD, the reason he chooses to stop there is uh, pretty obvious if you read the Bible and you understand the Bible, how Christians understood it in the first century. Today we actually think of Matthew 24 and 25 as having something to do with eschatology and the end times. And we think the book of Revelation has to do with eschatology in the end times. But they, neither of them have to do anything with eschatology in the end times. Um, they have to do with the transferring of the kingdom from Israel to the church. So in Matthew uh, and Luke both of them the major theme of those gospels is god's covenant lawsuit against israel so in the bible god calls a guy named abraham in genesis 12 he makes promises to him that he's going to be the father of a multitude and then he's going to that in him all the nations or families of the earth are going to be blessed and in the in the early parts of the bible Part of the reason genealogies are important is that the idea was that families became nations. So in the end of history, we have people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping God, right? That's the fulfillment of the whole flow of the Bible, that God would have a people for himself that are are a blessing and bless the earth, and that they would come out of Abraham and his seed. And that they would then, uh, that that blessing would spread to every nation and every family and every family people group of the earth, right? But uh, as God, uh, you know, then he he tells Abraham, your people are going to go down for 400 years. I probably don't want to get into this too much. It's the flow of the whole Bible It's what you're going to read if you read the book that we're reading this year called The Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. In, in a nutshell, he tells Abraham, your people are going to go down for 400 years to be in Egypt and so forth because the land I'm about to give you where the Amalekites and the Canaanites and so forth live, their iniquity is not complete yet. They're going to get so wicked that it's beyond crazy wicked and, uh, and I'm going to allow you to inherit this land. So on their way there, uh, after the Exodus, he meets with Israel in the wilderness, makes covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And, uh, and Sinai, of course, is Pentecost. And then he, uh, you know, he gives the law to Moses, and the law warns that if they don't, if they follow idols and they leave the Lord and they're not obedient to the Lord, then eventually the land is going to spit them out. All the prophets are not prophesying about end time events so guys can have late night TV shows on cheap television stations and make a lot of money about the end times to ignorant people. The, you know, the, the whole of the prophets, the prophets are calling the people of God back to covenant faithfulness to their true father, to their true husband, to their true vi- vi- uh, farmer, vi- vineyard keeper, and so forth, right? So um, that's the point of the prophets. And, he's, and the prophets are reminding them of all the curses that Moses promised would come upon the people of Israel if they weren't faithful, those curses are spelled out the most fully in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So the Gospels are really Jesus standing on the shoulder of every prophet from Abel to Zephaniah, and Zechariah, and all that. And uh, he's st- repeating their messages. And he's saying, like, woe are you, like Matthew 23, the eight woes. You know, Matthew 20 is telling all these parables, just like the prophets, that there was a vine keeper, and he planted a vineyard, and he and he wanted the produce from the vineyard. He rented it out to vine growers, which, who are representative of the leaders of Israel throughout the centuries. And he sent one servant after another, meaning he sent the prophets, and they stoned one, and they killed another. And, so forth, right? And so, um, finally he said, I'll send my son, they'll respect my son. But instead they said, here's the heir, let's kill him. Because he, Jesus already knew that they were planning to kill him. That was the eternal purpose of God. He knew, knew that, right? That's why when Peter's preaching in Acts, he talks about Jesus, whom you delivered up according to God's foreordained plan. Right, so the the reason he chooses 70 A.D. is because from the period of Matthew and Luke, uh, you know Matthew, Jesus stands in Matthew 23 after the eight woes. He says, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her." Jerusalem. If you read carefully in Revelation, Jerusalem is Babylon, the Great Harlot. It's not Rome or any other nonsense that has been perpetrated through the ages. It's very, quite clearly Jerusalem that that kills those who are stoned, who are sent to her. And Jesus says, "How often I've wanted to, to gather you under my wings, but you would not have it." He's already said in chapter twenty-one. Uh, I got it here somewhere in my notes. Uh, twenty-one verse forty-three. I, in Matthew sixteen eighteen, he says, "I'll build my called-out assembly, my ecclesia." In Matthew twenty-one forty-three, he says, "The kingdom is going to be taken away from Israel, and it's going to be given to a nation producing the fruit of it." Now, in Matthew twenty-three, after he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, let's see. Then he says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. And the word there is the same word as for Ichabod. No glory. I'm taking my presence. Just a few chapters earlier, he had said my house is is a house of prayer for all the nations. Israel's primary sin, besides covenant unfaithfulness to God and all its idolatry idolatry and false idols was that they hated the Gentiles and refused to be the blessing of God to the Gentiles around them. Uh, you, they're very much like so many churches today who don't have much in the way of evangelism and outreach. That's an abomination. No church should not be a missional d- disciple-making church. That's, if, you, if, if you're not equipping your people to get out there and do it, you're rebelling against God's purpose for the church so after he says your your house he disowns the temple he's no longer going to have anything to do with it. he calls it desolate, which is in the in the Septuagint version it's the the word used uh back in first Samuel when eli's uh son's wife is dying and she names her son Ichabod the glory has departed from Israel that's what Jesus is saying This, that's it I'm done with the with the Jews okay the rest the rest of the history of the New Testament the betrayal of Jesus his trial be, his, his trial that broke every law of how to do trials in the name of the law Uh. I uh, read "Who Moved the Stone" by uh, Morrison. And his, uh, and then the coming of Pentecost. The reason there's 17 nations is that's a, a type of number that, I uh, it's called a triangular number. Is that the name for it? Because if you add one plus two plus three plus four, 17 is symbolic of all the nations. If you add all those up, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 all the way up to 17, you get 153, which is why there was 153 fish in John, because it's representative of all the world. right? So um, the church, during the period from 30 A.D., the resurrection of Christ, the outpouring of Pentecost, the kingdom is starting to expand to all the world, several times it, in the in the new testament it says that matthew 24 the this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the nations and then the end shall come the new testament says several times that that's already happened because the early church uh, by 70 ad thomas had made it to india uh Various apostles had made it as far as Finland, Sweden, Norway, what's today France. uh, Churches had been planted in England. In all that happened in the first century, and now they didn't get to the Western Hemisphere or anything. But they, in the Bible, the first fruits are representative of the whole, and the first fruits of all nations had had the gospel preached to them. The gospel of the kingdom of God, not some Americanized, reduced, narcissistic "What's in it for me?" sinner's prayer gospel, but the real gospel, of the kingdom had been preached, and was in communities of, of the King. That were of communities of Christians living a corporate lifestyle under the King were starting to appear everywhere. So, in Matthew 24, when they say, "Look at these great buildings," and so forth. Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. The the city will be surrounded by troops, and it will be conquered and so forth. And he says, this generation will not pass away till everything I'm talking about is fulfilled. A generation in the Bible is 40 years. Nobody knows for sure if Jesus died in 30 AD or 33 AD. There's other things we know about based on, you know, you know events we found collaboration of roman documents and so forth that it had to be one of those two years and uh it most likely was 30 AD and Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD that's why he chooses to to stop the first section of the book in 70 AD because some important things happened in 64 AD Nero and, one of the five wicked emperors from what was called the uh, Julian-Claudio dynasty. There was like a family of five, including Caligula and so forth. There was a family of five wicked emperors. Nero was perhaps the most wicked of that bunch. And his full name, if you Wikipedia his full name, the letters of his name, because uh, they used to assign uh, a numerical value to letters they are they add up to 666 he's the 666 of the book of Revelation and uh, the whole book of Revelation is warning the Christians that a great time of persecution is coming which had started in 64 AD and Revelation is written somewhere between 66 AD and 68 AD And it's encouraging the Christians to stay faithful during this great wave of persecution. From 30 AD to 70 AD, the church was persecuted primarily by Jews and Judaizers. If you read carefully as you go through the book of Acts and read the epistles carefully, everywhere they went, the Judaizers came after them. False accusations, stirring up up riots, etc., because... um, They hated Jesus and they hated the Christians and they were trying to stop the ongoing purposes of God. They had become God's enemies. That's why Jesus' parables say, these enemies of mine slay them in my presence. And he's talking about the Jews and the Jewish leaders. Okay? 64 AD through 70 AD is a little transitional period that a couple things happened. The kingdom the churches are finally fully established. The whole New Testament is written by 70 AD. And there are church- churches established by 70 AD, in such that now the kingdom of God is clearly among the churches of the, of the Gentiles and the nations. And no longer is the kingdom of God have anything to do with Israel. God is finished with Israel, and they are destroyed by 70 AD with the temple never to be rebuilt again, contrary to popular eschatology. <laughs> because to rebuild the temple and rebuild the sacrificial system would be, would be a blasphemy against Christ, and it would be saying that Christ died needlessly if, we could, if people could actually be saved by works and by foreshadowings of sacrifices of Christ. It's amazing how shallow evangelical and deceived evangelical theology actually is. By the way, there's lots of books that that believe this. They're from people who are called Reformed. Uh, Read our eschatology book list. Okay, so, so 64 AD to 312 BC, 64 to 70 is kind of this transitional period where the persecution is gradually no longer gonna be from the Jews and from this point out, it's going to be from the Roman emperors In the Roman empires. The church lived in constant persecution until the year, the reason it ends at 312 AD, because in the year 313 AD, the emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and he issued a proclamation, called, sometimes called the Edict of Milan, because he was in the city of Milan when he issued it, it's sometimes called the Edict of Toleration, although that can be a little confusing because there's many edicts of toleration in church in, in all kinds of history. And it's sometimes called the Edict of Constantine. So it sometimes goes under three names. But he made Christianity legal and made, and, uh, made uh, persecution and, and prosecution of the Christians uh, cease in the Roman Empire from that time forward. And he himself became a Christian And that's why the the next section is called the Age of the Roman Empire, something like the Age of Christian Roman Empire, 312 to 590 B.C. During that time, the church had seven ecumenical councils, the first of which were called by Constantine, to iron out things like um, the true canon of Scripture, the true doctrines of the creeds, and and the the true leadership structure of the church and all that kind of stuff, right? And that's where we're going to go today is is toward starting to develop that. A couple other events on your timeline. In 69 AD was a thing called the Flight to Pella. Remember, Jesus had said in Matthew 24, 20, during his whole uh, what's called the Mount Olivet Discourse, in his whole description of the the final judgment that's going to come against Israel, and especially the city of Jerusalem, and all the details he gives for the whole chapters of Matthew 24 and 25, right in the middle of that, he tells his followers, pray that your flight will not be in winter. Right? So, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, chapter 4, After they pray and they're filled with the Holy Spirit again and they start witnessing boldly, it says that they began to sell all their possessions and lay them at the apostles' feet. Now the Lord never directed that anywhere before or since then. The Lord was doing that so they would have no land ownership nor business ownership in Jerusalem because he had already prophesied that he was going to destroy Jerusalem, and he wanted to remove his true people, the church, from Jerusalem. So they started practicing communism, a type of communism, not a a state-organized, but the church in Jerusalem only practiced communism. They sold all their property, and guess what? Over the next uh, 40 years, they became incredibly poor because communism always leads to poverty. Government, socialistic, planned economies, free enterprise always leads to prosperity, and planned economies always are very poor. And God wanted that in Jerusalem. That's why Jerusalem is never the model church of the New Testament. And when they began to plant other churches, they they sent out leaders from Antioch, and Antioch is the model church of the New Testament. And all the churches that Paul and Barnabas and others planted were on the model of Antioch, where everyone owned their own private... There was They had community, but not communalism. In Jerusalem only, they practiced communalism. That's why you see all the apostles taking... Re- collections for the relief of the poor in jerusalem the rest of the new testament in acts 15 when they agree not to cause the gentiles to be circumcised and not to have to become jews before they can become christians is basically what's at stake there um both paul acts 15 reports please remember the poor that is the poor of jerusalem (laughs) and and when paul is recounting later in galatians and so forth what happened in acts 15 he said they only they extended to us the right hand of fellowship they only asked that we would remember the poor that is the poor of jerusalem that's why in all the churches barnabas and paul are constantly taking collections to be sent to jerusalem because god was sustaining the church there as the churches got established in all throughout the rest of the empire till he no longer needed that church In 69 AD, there was a prophetic utterance in the middle of a worship meeting that said, flee Jerusalem now. Now, the time that Jesus has um, prophesied in in the Mount Olivet address is upon you. Get out of the city. And all Christians left. This is recorded in several ancient historical documents. Uh, All the Christians left Jerusalem and went to a place called Pella. That's why it's called the flight to Pella. They now named windows after, but uh Pel but the flight to pella is actually a city in what's known in the Gospels as the Decapolis, the ten cities that's just a little to the east of Galilee to the which is Galilee straight north of Judea and then Samaria as you're heading north, and then Galilee just to the right of that. Uh, east of, actually, on the math, is an area called the Decapolis where he r- ran into the Gathering Demoniac and other events of the Gospels happened And Pella is one of the cities of those ten cities. And the church of Jerusalem was gone out of Israel before the Roman armies conquered Israel. That was actually a, a land considered the Gentiles under another Roman aspect of the government. It's amazing how many Christians don't know this stuff. It's scary. All right, so starting in sixty four A. D. with Nero, the Roman emperors start persecuting the church over one thing: the cult of Caesar worship. Prior to Nero, uh, the Romans thought of the of the of the Christians as just another Jewish sect, like the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodotians, the Zealots, and so forth. And now there was the Nazarenes, they called them, the sect of the Nazarenes. By around the time of Nero, it became clear that this was a new religion and a new people and that the Jews hated them and were persecuting them and prosecuting them and trying to kill them. And that they were no—they were no longer a Jewish movement, but they were an international movement, right? So, the 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 emperors—Julius Caesar is the first Roman empire, emperor. Uh, he dies around forty-four BC. And uh, that's when the Roman Republic ended during the reign of Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire started. No longer was Rome run by a a Senate and a Republican form of government. It's now run by totalitarian emperors and the cult of emperor worship starts. However, up until around 64 AD, for about 120 years, Rome kind of overlooked the Jews' in terms of forcing them to sacrifice to the emperor because they knew they wouldn't and they knew they'd have a bloodbath on their hands. After 64 AD, they decided they would force the Christians to, to, to make the, the sacrifices to, to the Caesar, Caesars and the emperors. And when the Christians didn't, they were arrested and killed. And that becomes the history of the church until 312 A.D., and that's why your author chooses to end that period at 312 A.D. everyone following that? I'm just trying to give you the overview of the timeline and why that he chooses those dates. Now, 70 A.D. to 312 A.D., uh, he calls it, uh, what does he call it? The Age of Catholic Christianity. So some things... That you should know about it, John, do you need to ask a question, or did I catch it? okay, they're probably no more than me anyway. Google knows everything uh, <laughs> so it's hot in here is is anyone else hot besides me? I don't have an under I need to get like a air when we do the when we do the ceiling we're gonna put extra air conditioning vents right here. We are'm <laughs> gonna have like it totally cold right here all right, so Alright, so here's some things you need to know. 70 A.D. is really what's the period of post-apostolic Christianity. Now, there's good reason to believe that John lived till maybe 90, some, some people believe 100 A.D. Some people actually believe John was only about 40 years old, or I'm sorry, 14 years old when he, when he left his parents to follow Jesus. One of the issues we deal with all the time is is uh, parents aren't aren't like kind of kicking their kids out of the nest and making them become adults and get on their own quick enough. So that because you can't really follow God for yourself, till you're following God for yourself, you need to support yourself, live by you know everything. So in biblical times, people were ready to do that at age fourteen to sixteen. So if that's the case, Jesus calls John about 27 A.D. So if he lives uh, 73 more years, he's probably like 87 in the year 100 A.D., which is quite feasible. Lots of people even then lived into their 80s. However, by 70 A.D., both Peter and and Paul had perished in the persecutions of Nero. Of course, you know the legend of Peter, uh, which there's really no reason to doubt it. There's not a lot of independent documentation of it. It, It's just what the church taught, and it's in Eusebius' account of church history from around 350 A.D. And uh, is that when Peter... Sorry, i got to compose myself a second here. When Peter uh, was going to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord and requested to be hung upside down and was granted that request because he said, I'm not worthy to die the same way my Lord died. Paul was uh, most likely burned one of the sadistic things about Nero was he would actually take the Christians, uh, dump, them, uh, stick them in tar, uh, impale them on a pole, and light his garden parties at night with the burning Christians. This area, always this era of the church, always makes me think about that verse in Hebrews that's summarizing all the great saints and that they were sawn sawn into and and of course Hebrews 11 is talking about the saints up through that time period but still it applies to the saints after that And when when it's talking about how they were ripped up by lions all this stuff and then it says men of whom the world was not worthy Whenever I read that line, I always break down and cry. Um, so it's the post-apostolic era. Even though some apostles were still alive, most apostles died violent deaths. Um, there's actually, I don't think, yeah, the book doesn't cover this. The lectures do cover. Uh, they, there are fairly well substantiated legends of, of each apostle and how they died and, and all the others died violent deaths. Um, you know the understanding is that they tried to to execute John a number of ways and like Daniel in the lion's den he lived through the executions they boiled him in oil they fed him to the lions and so forth and the lions just didn't eat him just like Daniel in the lion's den and so forth and that's why he's on the isle of Patmos because they couldn't kill him so they exiled him alright so I'm going to go out of order and tell you some of the most important things of this time period. Then we'll get into if we uh, covering this time period. Chapter 7, he talks about the bishops. And I think that's one of the most important developments of that time. He's talking about 5 or 6. I'm just going to give you a slightly different order. Because in the post-apostolic era, it's also known as the... Um, the era of the apostolic fathers. Now that's a little confusing name because it's the era that many of the leaders of the church actually had known the apostles. Like Polycarp was a disciple of John. And I think Irenaeus was a uh, disciple of John. Uh, Timothy lived on for a while after the apostles as the, as the bishop of, of uh, Ephesus. John had been the bishop of Ephesus for a while. Supposedly, John the aged um, would actually address the church in, in Ephesus, and he would stand up in his older years and say, Beloved, love one another. So, um, after the apostles, the, the apostolic fathers are are not fathers of the apostles they're actually the apostles spiritual sons but they became the fathers of the post apostolic church right they're especially their writings that's why we had very good reports last time on guys like Irenaeus who did you do John you did Ignatius or um, Ignatius of Antioch right and who did Irenaeus somebody which one did you do Sam Julian Tertullian? No one did Julian the apostate, did they? <laughs> some people did, uh, both of you did ones that weren't uh, on the list, which is good. Uh, uh, someone needs to do Helen, St. Helen, who was Augustine's mother. This Some people, really, by the way, um, you know how, like, if you might have a certain kind of teacher that if you bring up your math problem or something, it's night right. They might send you back to your desk until you get it right. Somebody needs to do it a report or I'm going to send you all back to do it again. Uh, I, we need one or two on Athanasius and one, two, or three on Augustine. Now, here's how we could break that down. Athanasius could be up to three reports because someone could do, Athanasius is the first to put the, to put the canon at the 27 books that we call the canon today in a letter that he wrote. We're going to talk a little bit today, hopefully, about the canon and how that developed. Athanasius, somewhat important because um, there's if you listen to the black hip-hop and the black Muslims and so forth, one of the things that you erroneously hear all the time is that uh, Christianity is the white man's religion. Athanasius was an African-American, uh, not American, African, he was a black guy. And he, in fact, uh, his nickname was the Black Dwarf because he was a short black guy. And Athanasius single-handedly saved Christianity. He was the most important figure of his century with no close second. Uh, because he stood against the Arians for the true doctrines of the Incarnation. And there, there was a saying, Athanasius mundum, Athanasius against the world. He had to flee from, from the, the, the Roman Empire five times during his bishopric, um, and, and then was brought back each time. But there were times when it looked like the Arian bishops who taught a false Christology and were therefore a pseudo-Christian cult were going to wipe out real Christianity. And Athanasius stood against him in three very important ways. So any one of these could make a good presentation on Athanasius. I'd be glad if we had more than one. One is that he, um, part of what all the false cults always had a list of books themselves that had all kinds of false gospels like the Gospel of Thomas and so forth that were all written much later than the apostolic writings, usually half a century to two centuries later and that clearly taught different doctrines. So, Athanasius helped clarify the 27 books of Scripture. We'll, we'll give more detail. Athanasius wrote a book that if you go to Dominion Academy, you have to read, what, your sophomore year called On the Incarnation. What's that? Oh, you got to read the whole thing. Now you have to read the whole thing. If, if, if you, want, if, you want, if you want to have lunch with Pastor Greg, read the book and tell me about it. No, the, get the version that C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to because it's been translated into an easy to understand English and C.S. Lewis' introduction is fantastic. On the Incarnation. It's a defense of the, of the you know, the, the dual nature of Christ, that he's fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man in such a way that the the two natures are combined into one person, very, very similar to the doctrine of the Trinity, right? One person, yet in such a way that the two natures remain completely distinct and not confused or commingled. However, because of the current state of, we forgot all about the deity of the Holy Spirit, Christianity today, Nobody knows he wrote a similar book on the Holy Spirit, that and that the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is God was under extreme attack during his time, and uh, that it was uh, there were groups that thought the Holy Spirit's just a uh, energy force, non-personal, uh, that he was sent by the Father and the Son as a ghost, but that he he was not co-equal and co-eternal. That's why the creeds say I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and maker of the earth, you know, or whatever that uh, forget how it's worded. What's well, that giver of life and uh, who proceeds from the Father and the Son and together with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. Athanasius was fighting at, at, and nearly killed a number of times for that. And wrote a great book on the Holy Spirit. All charismatics and non charismatics should be required to read it um, and you can get it for like ninety nine cents on Kindle or something. One of the great things about great the old you know all the best books are written by old dead guys <coughs> so and once they're out once they're not in the public domain all they all you're paying for is somebody to format it nicely on Kindle so that you can get all you can get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the best Christian books of all time. For under two dollars and ninety-nine cents, some of them are free, but but they don't usually have as good of formats as the ninety-nine cent ones. Uh, it's just I think it's just called "On the Holy Spirit." I'd have to look. It's on my Kindle if you want to look it up. We'll, we will be reading it this summer. <laughs> the corporate week is part of the research on writing our Holy Spirit book. All right, which I think will be the first book we'll write. So let's keep moving. Here's some other things. After 70 AD, post apostolic, so forth, we already talked about the rise of bishops. Um, we didn't really talk enough about the rise of bishops. That's chapter, he puts it as chapter seven. Here's why that's important. Um, as, the, as, as the canon uh, was developing and as the creeds were developing, somebody had to fight for and defend the apostolic teachings. So a verse that you should all memorize, or at least know, and know about, is a very important verse for this class. 1 Corinthians eleven 19. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. 19. Look it up in multiple translations, but especially in the King James, because it, set, it basically talks about how It was necessary, I'm going to pull it up in my Bible gateway while we're talking. It was necessary for, uh, most of the modern translations say factions or sects or something like that. But the King James says heresies and the Greek says heresis, the word we get heresies from. So the modern translations probably are getting a little too modern there. Because frankly, factions doesn't quite mean as radical of a thing as heresies. Because you can have factions within Orthodox Christianity that don't get along. That's what we sort of have in denominationalism today. Um, but heresies are, means that, that it's outside the bounds of biblical Christianity. It's now a pseudo-Christian cult. So here's the NASB, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So Paul is actually saying to the church that had a lot of visions, God is sovereignly doing this. God is allowing challenges to the real faith to to emerge. So it can become evident what the truth really is. And that's in fact the, the entire process of the two sections that we're studying from 70 A.D. post-apostolic Christianity up until Gregory the Great uh, through the first uh, several of the church councils after Constantine's Conversion. The first councils start after Constantine's Conversion. So flipping that over to the KJV, uh, it says, For there must also be heresies among you that that which are that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So some translators say it may become obvious, evident, manifest, clear, and heresies, um, factions. Let's see what the ESV says. I think it says something like, um, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So here's what happens. From... uh, approximately 70 AD up through this period that we're going to look at next week um the age of the Christian Roman Empire up to 590 AD just before Gregory the Great who we'll talk about probably next week even though that's kind of the next section in his book he probably drew the line at a different place than I would have on that one um Various challenges to all the major doctrines of the, of the faith arise, and the church had to meet those challenges. And in so meeting them, the truth was pr- preserved. In Jude verses 3 and 4, he tells us to contend, fight it's a very aggressive word, fight, kick, argh, like at, at all costs, die on this hill. For the for the truth that was once and all for all delivered to the saints in the apostolic body of writings. That's what he's saying. So he's saying this of all things has to be preserved. And what you know, what a lot of people don't understand is the church meeting in these councils to fight about homo usian versus homoousian or whatever. Those That was the most important things that were going on on the planet then and maybe in the history of the world next to the coming of Christ himself. Because they were fighting for what does the coming of Christ mean for all mankind. They're fighting about who is the Trinity and what are the authoritative books. And what are the major doctrines of Christianity if you don't have your outside the bounds of the church? So chapter 3, he deals with Catholic Christianity. Chapter 4, 7, the bishops who were mostly post-apostolic fathers originally. Catholic Christianity, we're going to talk about what that means. John 17, Jesus says... Um, he prays that they all may all be one as the Father and the Son are one. Ephesians 4 talks about how there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and so forth. And it's, the whole chapter is about preserving the unity of the faith. Up until um, approximately the Reformation, Christians had the idea that if the church ever gets divided, no kingdom divided against itself can stand and I don't care what you want to say about this, you can shoot me if you want or throw eggs at me, I don't care. All the things we're trying to do in terms of restoring things at Grace Christian Fellowship is secondary to the fact that the church is so divided, it's destroying our witness in the whole world. The reason I'm willing to fight and die on the hill, that we would be an integrated church with black and white International students, I, I am praying all the time that God will bring us a significant Hispanic leader so that we can be a, a, have a lot of Hispanic people in this church and so forth. And more international students and more international students and then some more international students. Because we, you know, all this division and so forth makes the church say, you don't really believe what you believe. You can't get along with anybody different than you. And that's why, like, I'm so diametrically opposed. The church growth movement of the 1970s' major doctrine was: don't build diverse churches, build homogeneous churches. Go to a neighborhood where everybody's in the same socioeconomic class and build a church where everybody's the same. That's the key to big churches. So that has become the most important uh, heartbeat of Grace Christian Fellowship as far as I'm concerned. Catholic Christianity. There's been approaches to unity that are unity at throwing away all the, unity at the cost of reducing the faith. We have to find unity after the faith is restored. That's why we're willing to Work with churches is is you know, the highlight of my week. Last week was not just that uh, certain new people were back for the second time; it was that uh, Pastor Steve Woodman and his whole family came to church on Sunday last Sunday here at Grace Christian Fellowship because I value the fact that we have a friendship with the church a block away. Right? More you hear me talk about it all the time at Wright State because we have a lot of things we believe in common and. and hope to God we do more projects together and pray for each other and speak highly of it you know um, I'm so happy it's a, you know Jeff and Gene Jeff and Burks you know how they found out about our church Steve Woodman told them about our church they told Steve that they were in a charismatic church that was kind of Dysfunctional and and uh, wasn't at all studious. And he said, "And he said, you guys will love. If you want to be charismatic and study the Bible, you'll love Grace Christian Fellowship." And by golly, they do. I've met with them in the, in the two weeks they've been coming. I've met with him about thirty hours already. Their family, so uh, they have a lot to sort out. But they're really liking us. Um, thank you, Steve Wooden. I might pass that on with you, Bob. I already told, told him last week, but. Uh, we're going to get into next time the eight ecumenical councils, but that comes out of Catholic Christianity, out of what he covers in chapter three, and he'll cover that in later chapters. Chapter five, the process of the rise of orthodoxy, which as I already pointed out, was a sovereign providential process. God allowed attacks to the faith on every major doctrine so that every major doctrine could be preserved and clarified. That's how we got the canon and the creeds. Is everybody following me on that? Chapter 6 is about the canon and how we got the canon. That's how we got the canon. So uh, we'll cover that in a minute. Chapter 8, birth of the apologists and theologians. Um, That's the beginning of the the apostolic fathers that gave birth to the 2nd century apologists and the 3rd century theologians and so forth birthed a great intellectual tradition in Christianity. Christianity, um, for a number of reasons, kept expanding, growing, how they loved each other, how they served even the poor that weren't theirs. There's lots of reasons. Even Julian, the apostate, who, after, you know, he's called the apostate. Not Usually apostate means that um, that a person has fallen away from the faith. But after Constantine, the first Christian emperor, uh, I don't remember if Julian's the very next emperor, one or two emperors later. Julian was the ne- was the last of the very anti-Christian emperors, so he was called Julian the Apostate. Not that he was ever a Christian and then fell away, because he opposed Christianity when the empire had become Christian before him. And um, so, um, during that those periods, um, you know, if you care to do this. I, I read a bunch of the I've read, recently read a bunch of the books written by anti-Christian thinkers, including some by Julian the Apostate that uh, that attacked Christianity. And it's really kind of amazing how many authors there were in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century that were saying the Christians believe this and the Christians believe that and so forth and they didn't have any idea what the Christians really believed clearly. But all you need is you know is the uh, the accus- accusation of impropriety. You know, the, they said the Christians were having these love feasts, so they must be having, in their private, because the Christians didn't allow anyone in, at uh, their communion services who wasn't fully catechized and baptized in and in a covenant member of the church. So they said they must be having orgies at these love feasts. And I think there's cannibalism practice because they're eating someone's body and drinking his blood which there were actually mystery cults in Rome that, that like drank bull's blood and all kind of weird stuff, and they just figured it was another mystery cult doing weird rituals. And the, they, they're anti-empire. And they go out to the, they go out to, these Christians go out to the uh, uh, city dumps at night and save the babies that have been left out for the wolves to eat. And take them home and raise them as their own kids. They considered that a terrible thing to do. And they were really upset because they said there's neither male nor female. They're all one in Christ. They're they're teaching their men to respect and serve their wives instead of use them. Roman Roman wives had no property rights. They They were treated as less than your slaves by their husbands. And Christianity was considered a woman's liberation movement. People forget that today. So, all right, so that's an introduction to what we're doing today. (laughs) Uh, I suppose, yep. that varied some uh because you're you're thinking in, uh, of the followers of jesus in israel and israel would have had a much higher view of of womanhood than than the than the romans right for those listening on tape catherine just said it, that was very typical in the ancient world that women could not own property so let's see how much of these chapters we could get through um in the half hour, well, we we, we can go to four thirty. We got about one hour. Is there any way to cool me down? Is anyone else hot besides me? Are you cold, like shivering cold, or just okay? John, maybe swing that door open and just prop that door, prop that door open a little bit. Because I'm going to pass out. I need it. I need a portable air conditioner. All right. So let's. Uh, we're going to go in his order. So let's do chapter 3 uh, only worthless people class, Catholic Christianity some highlights that should be right in your notes so the word Catholic uh, is used for a couple reasons in which he uh, which he um, if you noticed in our creeds we actually have the word universal do you know why we have that? Uh, we really battled over whether to do that or not. It's a little bit like we have this heresy where we serve grape juice and wine, on, <laughs> which really makes John Weiss upset, because the early, the first the first people who proposed drinking wine, uh, grape juice instead of wine were the Gnostics of the 4th century, and the church was very adamant that if you drunk grape juice at communion, that would be a very big sin. Uh, that would be blasphemous against God and a heresy, and Evil as can be. We do it because people are so deceived out there and we want to bring people through to a healthier thing and there's no point in blowing them away right off the bat. So that's why we actually use the word Catholic because people are so ignorant that they don't know what Catholic means. So we've had visitor after visitor when we we used to have the word Catholic up there who goes, are you guys Roman Catholic? Oh my God! If there's anything that evangelicals and fundamentalists and reformed people all agree on is they hate Catholics they might not know anything about the Bible or the church tr- tr- the Trinity or whatever but by God the 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 whore of Babylon is the Catholic Church it's actually Jerusalem and uh, <laughs> and the, the woman you know she's the woman on seven hills and the Pope is the Antichrist And how Lindsay is is the Apostle Paul? (laughs) And uh, so people actually come here. We actually had people who never came back because we had the, the word Catholic in the creeds. So we said, well, let's water it down to universal. It means sort of toward the word Catholic and uh this way we'll get an audience of people and get to educate them a little bit before they hate us. Uh <laughs> we we want to slow the process down <laughs> to, so they can wait till they've been coming like 2 months before they hate us uh instead of the first week. But uh <laughs> Catholic does mean universal. So one of the reasons the church you see a lot of the church fathers start to use the word catholic in their writings is because Christianity had spread as far as India, uh, etc. Norway, Sweden. In fact, if you go to, I forget, I think if it's, I think it's Andrew up in Norway and Sweden. They actually have like consider them him uh, Andrew like the patron saint of the country because he was supposedly the first one who brought Christianity to them. Um, so there's all kind of churches named Saint Andrews and. Monuments to Andrew and so forth, and some of those—what uh, what do you call those? Uh, Norway and Sweden. There's kind of a name for all those countries—Scandinavian countries. Yes, <laughs> where the people have blonde hair, blue eyes, and big noses. But sounds good to me. But uh, yeah, um, at least they have hair. But uh, so during the—but—but the, the, but, but the re- other reason was not just the universal vision, but it was the common orthodox beliefs, the Episcopalian church government structure, and so forth. Okay, now, the Episcopalian church government developed like this. In the New Testament, there's the word presbyteros, which we get Presbyterian from, and really means overseer or elder. Someone who sees from a broader, eternal, mature Christian perspective with wisdom and in orthodoxy, in their mind and heart, and um, and episkopos, which means the same thing, and in fact they're used interchangeably. Right now, sometimes the Greek word poimen, which means shepherd, is applied to the elders, but not all shepherds are necessarily elders. That's in our church. We have elders, but we have people who we ask to shepherd various people. Who you could you could say that in a sense, Stephen. Leopold is shepherding Tim Kelly and Matt Fortner and Kyle Williams, you know, for instance. Um, And some of you have been asked to shepherd various people at different times. So, um, those were used interchangeably in the New Testament. uh, Presbyteros and episkopos, which we get Episcopalian or bishop from that word. However, by about 90 A.D., In the early church, there was always one presiding elder or senior elder. Because a very important biblical idea is called the one and the many. God is one, yet he's three. Three persons, one being. And in regard to ontology, the the Son, the Father, and the the Holy Spirit are co-eternal. And they're co-equal and they're in an eternal covenant and there's no order in their being. However, considering the eternal decrees of God and their ministry and what's called the economic trinity and what they do, the son is subordinate to the father and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. There's an actual heresy called the eternal subordination of the son or it's also sometimes called subordinationism. Because in that heresy, uh, the Son is always subordinate to the Father, and the Spirit is always subordinate to the Father and the Son. But that's in terms of their ministry and their economics, how they function. That's not in terms of their being. Okay? So in, the, in biblical thinking, when you're seated at the right hand, you're equal in power and authority and so forth. Okay, so... Um, Why did I get into all that? I don't remember. (laughs) Um, what, What was I talking about? Yeah, so all the bishops. We're talking about the bishops. Thank you. So the practice always was that there would be three or more bishops. The bigger the church... Some of the churches by the second and third century would have 30, 40, 50 bishops because they'd have 50,000 members and they would actually have one church in, say, a city like Ephesus. But on Sunday mornings, they would be meeting at, like, 15 different places because there was no building big enough. So in a sense, they would have, there's kind of a modern movement in the megachurch movement that's one church, multiple campuses. And that's actually not that unscriptural. Um... So, um, the practice always was, of those plurality of elders, someone has to be the presiding one. In fact, the, the way the the New Testament looked at marriage, the father and the wife are co-equal. However, somebody has to be the final covering and, and so forth, so the father's responsible to teach his children the faith and and spend time with his children and disciple them and all those kinds of things. He, The father is the primary educator in, in the Old Testament and New Testament cultures. But any, you know, I always say any man that wouldn't consult his wife about what to do with the kids is pretty foolish. I mean... You know, Catherine and I make financial decisions. Thankfully, we don't make too many discipline decisions with the kids anymore. Praise God. And uh, (laughs) we're past that time. But uh, some of you have that to look forward to. And believe me, as they age and get to be teenagers, it gets quite complicated at times. Uh, (laughs) Like, you need more than your husband and wife. We need to call a few pastors to figure out what to do here. (laughs) So, um, anyway... What happened was the the presiding elder gradually became called the bishop and the other guys were just called the presbyters or the elders. And that happened by about 90 AD. Now, there from their point on you have always had churches that thought the bishop form of government is the best. So like in the bishop form of government the bishop is maybe the district guy and he's and he's over Twelve pastors, or something, you know, that and so forth. Um, after the Reformation, especially among the Reformed Presbyterians and so forth, the the eldership or the Presbyterian form of government in Arbor Church and Grace Christian Fellowship practiced the the uh, Presbyterian form of government. So we're both parts of associations of like-minded churches, but the association can voluntarily share resources or ask speakers to come and so forth but you know the outside guys don't have any government in the church they might get asked to come and speak at a special occasion or if the the elders feel stumped uh, we we had a very difficult pastoral situation this week and we consulted uh, three pastors in the ARC and a uh, professional counselor as to what to do but ultimately the decision is the elders of the church. And the property is owned by the elders of the church. You know, if you know the, the, the Episcopalian situation, when the Episcopalians started ordaining homosexual ministers and all that, many Episcopalian churches quit the association and they lost their buildings and their property because the denomination owned them. So they had to start over again, renting gyms and everything like a startup church, even though they were quite wealthy churches. And they lost their bit in some cases they lost hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings and um, some of them tried to protect themselves by having money uh, starting new funds that this is this is for the new church fund and so forth and and the court cases were settled and the Episcopalian Church even got those funds <laughs> they got everything they got the vestments the pews the, they, the the new the churches that were holding out against that got nothing except to to start over again with the people so I know a lot about that because Catherine's brother who's a high powered lawyer in uh, Washington D.C. and a very devout Christian was in a probably the most famous Episcopalian church in the history of the country and they lost everything in their fight against the Episcopalian church and they had to meet in a gym with, uh, with thousands of members and lots who, who, who uh, in, in a given week they would bring in 100,000 and 200,000 in tithes, they had to start over again with nothing. So the, the Episcopalian form of government um, is, is kind of a church structure, but it's not always the situation where the, the denomination owns everything, but often it is. Um, so we 've that that those two forms of church government have been somewhat of a debate uh, from that point forward, also after the Reformation, especially uh, after what was called Arminianism. a third form of church government uh, began to emerge that really had never been done in history, called Congregationalism, where the congregation kind of votes on things and and, and every person, whether they're mature in the Lord or immature in the Lord. What's that? It, yeah, they all get the same vote. Kind of like our democracy today, like all sorts of people who get the vote that are completely ignorant or whatever. And their vote counts as much as people who know what they're doing. All right, so um, King Agbar, we don't really need to go into that. It's just proof that the, that the gospel had, uh, had gone well beyond the Roman Empire uh, Catholic Christianity was more than an organization it's a spiritual fiction, a conviction that all Christians should be one body that was huge like up until the Reformation um, what's called the first great schism was when the east and the west split in 1054 AD the first split in church history was a years into church history now we have a split about every 1,054 seconds. So some people, if depending, if you count independent churches, some people claim there's as many as 80,000 Protestant denominations. But that's really kind of exaggerated. Most people would say 6,000. Depends on if you count every little independent congregation as their own denomination. But the split, 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 split thing has been Uh, people split and honestly if you really get down to examining things today I would say especially in the last 60 70 years what motivates most church splits and church plants is the desire to be the leader it's all about ego and self promotion Now, the universality of Christianity is a common idea in the New Testament. The term catholic never appears. There's many theological terms that describe New Testament ideas, but the word itself like trinity is not in the New Testament. Ignatius Bishop of Antioch in the se- early 2nd century, John Gray's friend, is uh, as far as we know was the first person to use the word catholic. I'm going to have to unstaple these. Um Catholic means more than universal. It also means um, one continuous thought system. Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 22. I often beg people to do that. That's a big part of our, the, the vision of Grace Christian Fellowship. Um, you, you will discover something you've never thought about. Ephesians 2, 1 through 11, is, or 1 through 10, is always uh, presented like, thank you, John. More, uh, there should be a plug behind the black speaker there should be able to reach one behind this black speaker I think Uh, more almost every one of you will have heard sermons and Bible studies about Ephesians 2 1 through 10 but it will be have been interpreted in a radically individualistic way about your sin you know the three enemies of the Christian faith are listed the, the world the flesh and the devil and gra- by grace you were saved, and all these kind of concepts, things, and um, but um, Ephesians two eleven. If you read that as one continuing thought, he basically goes on to say, for that before this all happened to you, were excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel, from the covenant family of God, but now he has taken. Uh, you who are far off and brought you near, that is, into a people. And, you know, there, we all know in today's day and age, everyone th- knows that Sam Malante should not go to Taco Bell because his body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> you know, or, or uh, you know, God forbid you shouldn't smoke a cigar or whatever, or eat sugary foods or anything demonic like that. <laughs> cake, lollipops, whatever. And uh Pop-Tarts. <laughs> um just but uh but nobody thinks much about we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, you should stop eating Pop-Tarts for my sake. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding let me eat the pop-tarts no <laughs> um so try to think it, look at that ephesians 2 through you know verses 19 through 22 are pretty famous that you know about being uh, a holy temple to the lord and jesus christ the foundation and so forth but it's really all one thought What we have today is radically individualistic Christianity, which is really not at all. That's why this thing about gospel element number four, the history of Israel, is so important. Because God always wanted a people. And God will do very, you will actually, you can be a Christian 40 years and be really just at the starting blocks, a very baby, immature Christian, if you haven't found the covenant people that you're supposed to be a part of. The most important decision you'll make other other than to pray the sinner's prayer and start to become a disciple to read your Bible is who are you going to do this Christian life with? And how complete is their understanding and what's their vision and how much health is there and how much zeal is there and how much understanding and and what's, what's the vision and so forth? That's the most important thing you'll ever decide. Perhaps arguably more important than who you're going to marry. At least it's uh, up there. And um, myself, I don't think you join a church. I don't think that concept is biblical. If you look at Ephesians 4, you're jointed into the body of Christ. The body grows from the head, Christ, through that which every joint and ligament. A joint is where two members come together, right? And if I move my elbow, guess what keeps it from like going that way and this way? It has a thing called ligaments or sinews, which is the word for covenant in the New Testament. It's tied together by covenants. Otherwise, the muscles couldn't function right. Because every time you move your arm, one muscle has to contract and the other has to span. There has to be abduction and induction. Um, And if you... You know, if the if you don't have that, you, you'll be like spastic or something, um, which some people think I am. But uh, <laughs> you know that you're jointed into the body of Christ. God puts you where He wants you. You don't join a church; you're He He puts you in the church. You have to, of course, respond to His grace and His leading. And so forth. But most of the time where God puts you surprises you. You know? It's like, wow. I went to Bowling Green State University thinking I was going there to smoke more weed. And uh, get get my parents off my back while I'm smoking my weed. (laughs) But God had other plans and he wanted to joint me into a body of Christians after he made me a Christian that's goal was to restore biblical Christianity and he gave me that goal to do what we're doing today from the very first few months in 1974 I became a you know I couldn't study enough because I'm trying to say why is American Christianity so far from biblical Christianity how do we find the missing elements and I early in my Christian life God helped me realize that the church history is all about movements that discover one biblical truth and, and build their whole movement about that one biblical truth to the negation of all the other parts of the council of God. Discipleship meanings, discipleship structure. That's what we need. Holy Spirit gifts. That's what we need. You know, <laughs> we need to get become a missional church in the inner city for poor people. You know, you could rally around lots of emphasis. And if you look at successful churches, most of them have less than three emphasis. But the idea of restoring all of it, that's a big challenge, but thats we can have nothing less as our goal. Um. All right. Some authorities think Jews numbered as high as 7%. God fears. We've talked a lot about that at Wright State. I think we've talked about that here, right? Remember, in the New Testament, as you read the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles, you'll occasionally uh, see that word God fear. Okay? So during the period between the Testaments... You know, uh, Malachi was written approximately 396 B.C. Uh, So Jesus was born 4-6 to B.C. So approximately 390 years transpire with no books written. Uh, There are apocryphal books that give us some of the history, like the Maccabees and all that. But we do know a lot about the history of the intertestament period. We're not going to get into all that. But what began to emerge was called the synagogues, because the Jews were progressively dispersed. The first dispersion came when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Right? Then the southern kingdom was conquered in two ways by the Babylonians in 597 and 586 B.C. five thirty uh the ba- so the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians during that time between during the periods between the first captivity and the second after the second captivity the Medes conquered the Babylonians <laughs> so then you start reading about Darius the Mede and so forth and Cyrus who's uh, one of two people in the Old Testament called the Lord's anointed interestingly enough and he you know these guys say to, you know that you should go back and rebuild the temple which Jeremiah had prophesied would, would happen in 70 years the, the call to go back happened exactly 50 years after the captivity but by the time they rebuilt the temple and the walls of Jerusalem's basic structure they hadn't even completed it was 70 years. Nehemiah's all about the rebuilding of the walls. So Uh, Why did I get into that? I'm going somewhere with it, I think. Uh, During this, then Alexander the Great and all this come along. Alexander's about 333 B.C., somewhere in there. He had a 10-year period of conquering. He started when he was 20. He died of syphilis when he was 30. He could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer his zipper. And uh, so it conquered him. So whatever sin you can't conquer will kill you. So, um, during the time of Christ, by this time, uh, because, of course, the reason the synagogues rose up, it means with, S-Y-N in Greek, or S-Y-M, symphony, synchronize our watches, means to sin, is to with, chronos is the word for time, if I'm saying, of course, nowadays all of our cell phones are synchronized automatically by the Whatever the great clock is, the great pumpkin clock in the sky. There's actually some great clock, I forget, all the detail. Anyway, but we used to have to go like, Chris, let's synchronize our watches, because, you know, you know, especially if we're doing some covert operation in the middle of the night or something. The military guys would have to synchronize their watch, right? Now they're all synchronized automatically. But uh, so uh, sin, like the synoptic gospels, looking at the optic has to do with sight, right? Synagogue, Gogos is Lagos, the word. It was a place where they gathered with the word. Because the sacrifices could only be offered in Jerusalem at the temple, but very small percentages of the Jews lived in Judea, in Jerusalem, close enough to be at the temple all the time. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So the synagogue system developed, and on the Sabbath day, They would come to, and different people would take turns reading the word, they would sing some songs, and then they would say, would you like to read a portion? And especially the guys who were respected and the rabbis and so forth would come read a portion and then they would comment on it. And generally most synagogues, if they had enough wealth, would try to get the most prestigious rabbi they could, who was a... Great commenter on the scriptures, like man, you should read his articles about what the scriptures are saying right that's um, so that is happening in the time leading up to the first coming of Christ all throughout the Roman Empire some so some important things about that 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 uh, some of which he covers, some of which he doesn't I'm off the notes, but it's no extra charge. Um, <laughs> One is that um, when Jesus first comes out of the wilderness, he speaks in the synagogues at Nazareth and Capernaum. Right? Then he starts gathering disciples and so forth, and he speaks openly in the marketplaces and the synagogues because he's following a pattern that's all through the Bible that God always offers the repentance and the truth to his people first, and then, when they reject it, to everyone else, Jesus followed that pattern. That's why the disciples all went to the synagogues when they went from city to city. First, proclaimed Christ coming in the kingdom, and then they would go to the marketplace, to the Gentiles. Right? So that's important. So, at, you know, in Matthew, that's that gives you some context. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, they were amazed because he was speaking as one who actually had authority and not as their rabbis or their scribes. Like they are, they're, excuse my vernacular, but it helps communicate. They're basically understanding, wait a minute, all the crap we hear in the synagogue all the time is a bunch of pontificating people who are bullshit artists trying to convince us they know what they're talking about. but this guy actually has authority he's this is the real rabbi this is the rabbi we you know we grew up memorizing the scriptures and as children and being hearing from the rabbis and so forth and we've had this sneaking suspicion that you know this idea that miracles only happened in the time of Moses and all these all the legalism and performance based stuff we kind of knew it wasn't that good and then when we heard Jesus, we were like, oh, that's why, because the, these rabbis are way off base. This is the rabbi that we should listen to. That's what Matthew 7 is saying at the end of Matthew 7. That's what Taylor Bondley went through when she got the Bowling Green and tasted some church... Christians that really worship and really knew the Lord and were grace based instead of performance based and she's like "Ah, I always knew there was like this thing wasn't supposed to be full of death right? That this was supposed to be there was supposed to be joy there was supposed to be life you know it's like coming out of this 40 year walk through this dry desert and can I, can I be faithful to the Lord one more day because he hates everybody and it's and God's just mean and he's waiting for us to step out of line so he can smack us and then all of a sudden I I find the real God and it's like wow he actually loves us and he knows we can't do it so he died for us so he could give us the power to do it wow this is like The real rabbi has come. All right. So, during the synagogue time, I'm just kind of giving you... That was no extra charge, but I had to preach on that a little bit. That'll help you understand your New Testament better. There's three kinds of people that go to the synagogues. There's biological Jews who were born descendants of Abraham. We cover this all the time at Rock Campus Fellowship and the campuses and stuff. Secondly, there are Hellenized Jews, people who weren't born Jewish, but have converted to, to Judaism. Now, that was a hard sell, it was, but it was increasing. In the 200 years before Christ, that was a growing movement because the Roman Empire was based on secular, humanistic, postmodern ideas, and it had no moral compass and, and so forth. And people... Were, said, thought the God of the Old Testament and the law and so forth, this makes sense. Right? Now, to, a, to, to, er, to the, all the nations that make up the Roman Empire, most of them considered circumcision really abhorrent and gross. So the ones who converted were so convinced they were willing to go through that gross thing because they wanted to be part of the people of God no matter what it cost. But then there was a third group of people called the Godfears. Some of them did not convert because they just couldn't mentally get past how gross circumcision was. It was considered really disgusting. So, uh, but most of them who didn't convert were actually people who worked for the Roman government as soldiers and centurions and different things like that who would have lost, they were ambassadors and, you know, like sent to this province by the by, out of Rome to do this or that job, and they would have lost their career had they converted. Christians face that kind of decision all the time today. So they would still go to synagogue, and deep down they believed it was true and so forth, and they would usually live a moral oral, moral life, but they weren't going to go all the way and convert. That's why it was such a huge deal in Acts 15 when they decided uh, people can come directly to Christ without getting circumcised. Because the idea was, most people think to be fully part of the people of God, you had to take the covenant of circumcision. Now there's, the church is deciding, wait a minute. Circumcision has been superseded by baptism as the covenant of initiation ceremony into the people of God. And let's not lay that burden of circumcision on them. Let them come directly to Christ without becoming Jews first. They can just jump right in to be Christians. That was huge. And the church, um, up till about 100 A.D., High, high, high percentages of people who received the gospel were from those three groups of people. Biological Jews who were practicing their faith, Greeks and Romans, Medes, Persians, Egyptians and so forth, Cretans that were, that were already converts to Judaism and therefore they already knew Hebrew because that was part of converting. It wasn't just circumcision, like in Islam today. You have to learn Arabic. They don't consider any non-Arabic uh, translations of the Quran valid. So uh, that was how Israel was. And then there was the God-fearers. And those were the people who converted to Christ. And once the God-fearers heard that we can go directly to Christ without circumcision, thousands of them converted. Now, it was still a big deal for guys like Cornelius in Acts 10 because he was jeopardizing his entire career. He was making, in order to follow Christ fully, he had to make a career change. Now that was much more common in the early church. In fact, if you were in the theater, the church did not allow you to become a Christian unless you renounced and left the theater, because the theater was considered too immoral. Today we get, you know, movie stars and sports stars, converted and they kind of pray the sinner's prayer and then they're still living half pagan life and half Christian life and then we put them on TV and make them famous and then they all backslide. And it's a racket. The early church had none of that stuff. They, they uh, Famous people were, were kept kind of private and secluded while they were being catechized and discipled for several years before they went public with their decision so they wouldn't profane the name of Christ by not being fully Christian in their character and behavior. You can read about that in our great book When the Church Was a Family. Um, So uh, the radical nature of early Christianity made many people fear the pagan gods would be eventually deserted. You see that in the book of Acts and other places. Irenaeus of Lyons. Uh, Lyons is actually a city in what's today France. It was Gaul at the time. Very important figure in church history. His most famous work is called Against the Heretics or Against Heresies. Now, uh, that started, there's er, many early Christian ideas started like trends in the church. So there are still all kinds of against this and against that books. That's become like a common thing throughout church history. Just like Augustine in the 5th century wrote what's called his Confessions, right? So if somebody wants to do Augustine, someone could do Augustine's Confessions. Someone could do Augustine's City of God. Someone could do Augustine's Works on the Trinity. So we could have three or four people on Augustine, easy. But Augustine's Confessions started a tradition of books that basically are your autobiographical testimony. And uh, if you've never read Augustine's Confessions, it'll give you encouragement if you're like a great sinner. In fact, we should, remind me of this, somebody, John John Gray, you're good at reminding me of stuff. We should make that required reading for all the guys that come. We have lots of guys come in and and confess that they're porn porn addicts and so forth. Augustine was like a total reprobate lust addict. (laughs) I mean, that's what his confessions are all about. One of the things he did because of his struggles with lust is he had like this whole regiment where he immediately was famous because of his education and everything. And so uh, he actually had full-time paid people who kept him from ever meeting privately with a lady. <laughs> like he, In other words, he had paid people watching, watching that he couldn't sin all the time. Even when he's, like, at night, he had people, like, in his bedroom, you know, just making sure he's not sinning. <laughs> uh, if you got enough money, that'd be... <laughs> Well, I mean, he right away he was like a bishop and so forth because he was converted by a famous bishop and was already a famous teacher of Greek philosophies and stuff like that. Um, what else do we want to cover from this? The social impact of the gospel. There's a lot that you could, I mean, I'm, I'm going to just move on to the next chapter because we're going to run out of time. Chapter 4 of the Tiber floods. I don't know, where, the persecution of Christians... This is a huge deal. Uh, there's a lot on, this, on, the, uh, on the audios from uh, Dr. Fortson that's really good. The persecution of Christians is a big chapter. I'm just trying to hit some of the most important things for you. And here's why. Um, Jesus said in Acts 1, 1.8, 1, 8, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. Right? The Greek word there is martyrion which we get martyr from. Okay, so the word what happens over time is words change. Pagan initially meant farmer or rural person, but by the 5th century the only places where the Greek mystery cults and the in the polytheism was still being practiced was out in the countryside. So the word for rural person change, the word pagan changed meanings to those people who still uh Practice the superstitions that Christianity had smashed. Right. Likewise, the word martyr changed from being a witness for Christ to what was considered the ultimate witness when you're on trial for being a Christian, and you're because the the uh, Romans from the from from a little bit after Nero had the policy that if you recanted your uh, belief in Christ and went ahead and offered the sacrifice to the Israel. Or to Israel to the to the emperor you would be forgiven and set free and thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians for, refused to do that in 64 ad to 312 ad do the math 36 48 248 years of Christians dying rather than offer the sac the incense to the to to Julius Caesar, or to the Caesars, the cult of emperor worship. Now, there were various waves, and various ways they did it. Um, in some cases, when you had to do it once a year, offer the sacrifice to the offer, and when you did, you got similar to what we have today, like a passport. Or, in other words, you get a stamped thing that said you did the sacrifice. So, all sorts of issues in the church began to emerge over this because some rich people would pay someone else to to do it, or they would pay a like a printer to get them a forged copy, like people still do illegal passports and stuff, right? False kids that have false driver's license so they can go bar hopping when they're just twelve or whatever. It, you know happens all the time um, What's that? Sam, did you ever have a false ID? No, no you don't have to. You don't have to uh, confess. Just talk to me after church. No. Um. What what did they used to say, um, like like a Jesus trial when they basically were saying, "Tell the truth." Oh, I, I adjure you for the glory of God or something. There was a phrase they would say that may, then you were, then you had to sell the truth. Anyway, um. We had kind of a cheesy movie that we saw one Friday night about Polycarp, for instance. Polycarp was a disciple of John. He became bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, right? And Polycarp's martyrdom became very famous. Uh, the The movie was... You know, I buy all these movies about various famous Christians, and some of them, like the, the one on John Wesley was pretty good. The Polycarp one was really cheesy, but, uh, uh, but not as bad as the John Huss one. The John Huss one was the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it was worse than Gumby and Pokey or whatever. But uh, uh, but some of them are pretty good. The, you know, the one on John Wickliffe, uh, I don't think you've seen that on a Friday night. You ought to. It's a good, really good one. Um, let's see what else do we want to say so most Roman authorities were remarkably tolerant of religions from the lands they overran because most of the national religions of the conquered countries uh, could they would still pay homage to the emperor because the, in polytheism there's many gods and theres and who cares who's the most important gods and all this kind of thing and it was kind of like if you conquered this country then our gods are more badass than your gods and your gods are wimpy and our gods are tough and you know the christians would have none of that they insisted there's just one true god uh, the the word hagias, by the way is often translated saints or holy ones so all through the new testament you see saints Let's see What else do I want to say a bird? Um, Yeah, so Tertullian writes, if the Tiber floods the city or the Nile refuses to rise or if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lion. So some of, like the persecutions would come sporadically. They would often come, uh, they would just be regional, um, one of the things you might know is uh, in one of the letters to Revelation the, the, uh, when it's, it's writing to the, tell the church in Pergamum then he talks about that you live where Satan's throne is like most modern Christians are like what the heck is that about right okay because Pergamum was the first in what's now Asia Minor in Syria uh, Turkey in Syria I should say which was called Asia Minor back then Pergamum was the first city in that area that fully embraced the cult of the Roman Empire worship and built the first temple to the worship of Caesar. And all through the Bible, Pharaoh, the king of Babylon, the king of Tyre, is always, uh, the to- to- in, in the ancient world, all governments were planned economies. Planned a- uh, they were all totalitarian and the and the emperor was always considered total. You know the whole kind of idea of constitutional limitations that began to grow in England and then spread to the United States. That actually came out of Reformation theology, that man is basically fallen, and that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. So um, basically, they were overthrowing the entire history of mankind where every civilization had a cult of emperor worship. Even until then, and, uh, even in Christian Europe, they had a thing called the divine right of kings, the idea that kings, all authority is from God, Romans 13, and so the king rules on behalf of Christ, and, that, and the, you know, that's how you get guys like Henry VIII, who was a total barbarian and a glutton and killed his wives and all that stuff so the idea of of limiting the government by constitutions and so forth all came out of the idea that all men are created equal which came out of christianity uh who's the um who's the guy that's indian by nationality that writes a lot about that stuff he's no uh, he's um he he's a pol- political writer guy um yeah De, uh, Dinesh D'Souza if you ever want to kind of understand how because one of the things you'll hear from liberals today is how could Jesus have been this godly person when he never spoke out against slavery or about against totalitarian and so forth and what Dinesh D'Souza demonstrates very clearly is that Jesus laid all the ideas that, that eventually would cause equality of rights smash slavery and bring about uh, limited liability or limited governments constitutional government and so forth Jesus was clearly going to build a a world changing movement from the inside out from the bottom up and he wasn't directly taking on political issues but he but in the end the political issues would topple to his ideas Dinesh D'Souza has some very good stuff about that Um, he's a little intellectual for some but You'll you like him. You'll like him. Have you read of some of his stuff? What's that? Yeah, you would like him. Um, you couldn't possibly be a lawyer, not like Dinesh Susan. So, starting with Nero, one of the things that happened was there would be more persecution at different seasons, and especially if there was a time when the emperor or a government official was uh, under some kind of um, criticism. So part of uh, how the first persecution actually got started is Nero was an incredibly hedonistic uh, emperor who basically wanted to rebuild the whole northern part of the city of Rome in his own image. And so he purposely set fire to Rome the fire got out of control and didn't just burn the northern part where he wanted to, it burnt the whole city. And everybody was up in an uproar against Nero. And so Nero said the Christians started the fire and made the Christians a scapegoat. Kind of like throwing your friend or your pastor or somebody under the bus. So he threw the Christians under the bus. And that led to the outbreak of huge persecution against the Christians. Some of the issues that come out of the persecutions we'll, we'll talk about next time too because these go, some of these issues go through both of the next two sections all the way up to the time of Gregory the Great. But one, some of the issues that, that came to pass were like, like the, the, the biggest persecutions were actually right before Constantine uh, during the realms... It uh, realms, um, starts with a D... Um, should be in here what's say it again diocletian right yeah so um one of some of the issues that emerged were some people uh didn't stay courageous and back down so um at the time it became a huge issue as to whether these people could be restored to the church. Many people said no. Like how, when when our brothers and sisters died in the lions to the you know the lions and the gladiators and so forth, and they were burned at the stake and they were crucified, why should we allow these people who uh, uh, chickened out to be at the same communion feast and the same worship table as as us? So there was this ongoing debate of what to do with the lapsed. They they were called. Like should we? allow the lapse back into the church and you know that it's hard for us to understand these things because it, you can't you can't uh, judge one time period by another today like you know someone you know hey i killed my mother i ate my children I, i'm a rapist and a polygamist and, but i'm really sorry and we're like okay come on jesus loves you come on and uh, you know so we we kind of have a, like a whole different view of these things and they they had uh more of a let's let's make sure that there's a true contrition and that the fruits of repentance accompany the repentance you know you couldn't just confess and repent let's make sure the axe has gone to the root, and there's some way of understanding this person really is a completely new person, and if they were faced the same thing the next time, they wouldn't back down and so forth. So that became a big issue. Uh, you know, one of the things that's that was rarely brought to to bear on that issue is you know our the 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 two great pillar apostles of the church have always been considered Peter and Paul, of course. Uh, Paul was a murderer of the Christians, and Peter denied Christ three times. And both of them were restored to Christ. That was rarely brought up in these debates, by the way. Uh, Moving on to, I guess I'm at chapter 5, the rise of orthodoxy. We've already talked a little bit about orthodoxy. We'll get into it more next week because we're getting late. But again, that 1 Corinthians 11, 19, you really got to, like you should at least memorize the reference. like, Because there, what Paul is saying is God is sovereignly supervising a process where every major idea of Christianity is going to be challenged by false groups. And that really began to pick up after 70 A.D., and continued on to uh, about 590, about when Gregory the Great became the Bishop of Rome. And those challenges gave us what was called the seven ecumenical councils. And uh, let's see how much of this is in these is in this chapter. Uh, trying to look at the notes. Um, but as you know, orthodoxy is a big idea in the, in the Alliance for the old churches and in our church. Orthodox means correct worship or right belief, right? The right doctrines, ideas, or the right worship. That we're worshiping the right God. Because as we often point out, when most evangelicals pray the sinner's prayer today, they're praying to a God that's far reduced from the God of the Bible. Right, and then in other words, they're saying, dear lord, as as we've redefined you to be <laughs> you know like the God who killed Ananias and Sapphira he 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 doesn't ex- we're not praying to him right <laughs> the God of the Old Testament is the bad God, right, the God of the New testament's the you know'll we'll forgive anything we do real cheaply all the time, right <laughs> so Um, orthodoxy is supposed to lead to orthopraxy, which means right practice. Some of the things you should remember about that is much of the structures of Paul's epistles talk about the framework of good theology, Romans 1 through 11, and then Romans 12 through 16, orthopraxy. As a result of this, these three different presentations of the metaphysical ideas of the universe that I've given you—Romans one through four, the first argument of the gospel; Romans five through eight, the second one; Romans nine through eleven, the third one—as a result of this, Romans twelve through sixteen, how should we live? Ephesians follows the exact same structure: first three chapters all about theology and the body of Christ and how it all—it's the it's the milk that produces the bones. But Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is the flesh that that moves as a result of the right bones. And in the Bible, those are never separated as we do in modern times. The right bones is today just theoretical, and it doesn't necessarily have to lead to the right practice or experience. So then along comes the idea of heresis, heresies, uh, Galatians 5.19-21 lists heresies um, as one of the deeds of the flesh. In the whole list of deeds of the flesh, one of them is, uh, modern translations usually use factions or so forth, but the Greek is heresis. Okay? So, So heresy and bad religion should not be confused. Whenever you see the little G W, that's um, Diana's way of saying this wasn't in the text. This is in my little note boxes that I that I put in as I read. Heresies and bad religion should not be confused. Heresy should be reserved for clear biblical breaches of the main ideas covered in the four great creeds of this period: Nicene, Apostles, Athanasian, and Symbol of Chalcedon. Um, then we talk about how her- heretics, in fact, served the church in unintended ways because they made the church clarify what to fight once and for all for the... The, uh, the word, by the way, the once and for all, the faith which was handed down, delivered in the New King James. There's in, in our, uh, if you want to listen to our mini-series called uh, the mini-catechism series, I, I think in the second part of that series I cover that word very detailed. But Paul is talking about 1 Corinthians 15 that I delivered to you as a first important that which was handed down. Well, we don't you know like we have this kind of creativity in modern Christianity and like the pastor always has to come up with a new cool twist in the sermon and something I never heard before. But the early Christians were being were concerned about being faithful to that which was handed down. Not about creativity. So Again, heresy is denial of the main doctrines of the faith, not just you know a little weird emphasis. Uh, we already talked a little bit about Athanasius and so forth. Modalism. So on the on so on the if you're on the notes for chapter this is five page three there's a list of some of the major early heresies one of the ones you should arius is the one that that um, athanasius battled for years in the west in there and gregory of Nyssa in the east some great gregory's in the history of the church may i be worthy of the name someday Marcion, you should know a little bit about him. His was kind of a neo-Gnostic, but he went further. He kind of saw Jesus' life and ministry as completely unconnected from the Old Testament. He rejected the entire Old Testament. And he had a list of books and parts of books that he agreed with in the New Testament. And he saw the God of the Old Testament as being evil and the God of the New Testament as being good. Sound familiar? Evangelicalism right? And dispensationalism. So, um, uh, he published his own official canon, and so the church, um, the the 27 books that we have were all circulating by about 70 AD and being copied. Now, some modernist scholars and even some fundamentalist scholars who've been influenced by the modernist scholars will say that uh, some of John's writings weren't written until 90 A.D. and stuff. That's nonsense. But uh, because of the book of Revelation, uh, had, the, had the destruction of Jerusalem already happened, it would have said so. <laughs> so would Colossians and so forth. They were all written before 70 A.D. Uh, that's very clear if you even just read the New Testament. So, um, where was I going with this? Ch-ch-ch-ch- Going somewhere with this that seemed important at the time, Marcion. Uh, so all these books were uh, were circulating, and churches would trade them, and they would copy this letter and that letter. Most churches from from the first century had uh, eighteen to twenty five of the books or so. Lot only some of the big city churches had all twenty seven. But there was not always a consensus as to which ones needed to be. There was some strict criteria they followed. Was it clearly written by an apostle or a disciple of an apostle and authorized by the apostle? So, for instance, the Gospel of Mark is one of the books that there was never any argument about. In fact, the the books that exist, the, the arguments start with Hebrews, some there were a few churches now and again that didn't think Hebrew should be included because no one knew who the apostles that wrote it were and there's uh, some things in Hebrews 10:26 that on the surface without really digging deep in it seemed to, d- to deny the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints because he says if we go on sitting willfully there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins and that is a hard idea to wrestle with John did a very masterful job with that in his uh, Hebrew series, if you want to understand that. Um, because the church has long since settled those things, but most people don't know that. First, second, and third John, there was some debate because there was the, some people thought they were all written as one letter originally, and then uh, separated later, and this kind of thing. But really, the debates were very minor. There was quite a bit of debate about Revelation or Apocalypse. Some people did not except that some did. Uh, But for the most part, there was uh, this whole thing. Now, uh, that most of the books were accepted by most of the churches and were circulating all through the Roman Empire to various churches in the first century. But the church never uh, really got together in council and said, these are the 27 books. The church always accepted the 39 books of the Old Testament, that we still use today. That, uh, be, and those were pretty much settled by the Sanhedrin and the Jewish rabbis as be, from the in years 200 to 100 B.C. And Jesus quotes out of the books without ever raising any questions as to adding apocryphal books and anything like that. Now, there is one quote from the book of Enoch, which I think is in Jude. But for the most part, the apostles just quote the 39 books of the Old Testament and Jesus did too and they never raised any question so from the beginning of, of Christianity all Christians accepted the 39 books of the Old Testament in modern times after the Reformation at the Council of Trent in 1544 or so the Catholic Church decided to add six Old Testament apocryphal books from the Testament period including Enoch so The 27 books, nobody ever really had a 100% consensus on them until Marcion forced the church to deal with it. So there's that process again. So uh, Athanasius is the first one who wrote a letter endorsing the exact 27 books that we still have today. And then that was accepted at, I forget which church council, uh, but Athanasius was at that and the church has agreed on those books ever since then. Now, one of the most important reasons, the word canon, by the way, means rule, so the authoritative rule. I've got to wrap this up. Um, we're getting late. One of the most important concepts there is this. Your average, you hear all the time, I just heard several times in the last couple of weeks from newer people to our church, well, we don't go for all this biblical studies, theology stuff. in there. We, we just go by the Bible. <laughs> and uh, You know, church history, theology, what are you, that's nonsense. Like, we just, our our church just follows the Bible. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, brother, thank you, Jesus. We love you. And, uh, no point in arguing, because you won't get anywhere anyway. So, the problem is, you can't have that mentality and go by the Bible. (laughs) Because the 27 books, uh, you have to believe that Jesus said, I will build my church, and that Jesus was active in the church. He said, I will send you apostles and prophets, right? And He said, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them all now. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will say them to you. He also says, The Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you in all the truth. And yet, Jesus superintended, super He reigns from heaven, He is the Lord. He gave, Ephesians 4, he gave apostles, prophets, shepherds, and teachers. And he uh, watched over the process of what got written, what got preserved, what got accepted. And he guaranteed, made it happen that the church got it right in the 4th century. So you can't be like this evangelical anti-church history person and actually say we follow the Bible. If you see the most extreme uh, versions of, of modern fundamentalism, that would you know, like even include, uh, say, the the Anabaptist movement and the, the, which started the whole rebaptize uh, only believers and so forth, but but eventually added things like Pietism and dispensationalism and so forth, and you get that whole ma- mentality of no creed but Christ and know nothing but the Bible, and, and there most of the extreme versions of that will actually say that during the time of the apostles, the church had it right, and maybe for a decade or two after that, and then Christianity went all the hell at 100 A.D. Until we evangelicals came along and restored it all after the Civil War. <laughs> and we just go by the Bible. As, of course, they mean the Bible written... Directly to us with our with all of our lenses of modern ideas like dispensationalism as our interpretive principles, the problem with all that nonsense is it's besides it being totally uneducated, is that um, the Bible we have wasn't finally agreed upon until you know 400 years into the church history. So you actually have to believe that Jesus said, I will build my church and that he gave gifts to the church and that he is the Lord and that he was seated at the Father's right hand. And just like John pictures him in Revelation, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and all that stuff. and You know, the worship going on in Revelation 4 and 5. That Jesus is the one who's making sure that all scripture is inspired by God. And not only did they get it right in writing it in the first seventy years, but they got it right in preserving it and copying it, and they got it right in choosing which books to include. Right? So to have this anti intellectual, anti history, just we just go by the Bible is just nonsense. Hopefully you understand what I'm saying there. Um, Really should talk about modalism, but it's late. Does everyone know what modalism is? That's like when you hear things like, God is, the Trinity is like water. Ice, when it's frozen and steam and what's the other? Water. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) Okay, that's a doctrine called Sabellianism or modalism. It's one of the great heresies because water can't be ice, steam, and and liquid at the same time. So groups like, uh, uh, I hope, I, I don't know if uh, um, Taylor left or she just went to the restroom, but she grew up in a group like that. Um, and this idea that God... Uh, is just one, but he can't be, you know, like sometimes he's the father. And then when he's doing certain things, he's the son. And then when he's doing other things, he's the spirit. But then he goes, reverts back to being the father. Uh, he takes on different forms. You know, that might be great in like token novels or something, but there's some kind of craziness. But, you know, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, three persons, existed from all eternity as separate identities, as separate personalities that are one God of one substance and one being. Try to figure that one out. Report to us next week. No, uh, Modalism is a, is a damnable heresy that's very popular today. T.D. Jakes, a very famous TV guy, is a modalist. Um, Joyce Meyer, a very famous TV person, is a modalist. Both of them are actually outside the bounds of Christianity completely. Whenever you see that kind of thing, if you, you know, like Joyce Meyer has seven $2 million houses. Really? I know. I was going to come over to your $2 million house later this evening. All right. So we'll end, we'll kind of wrap it up, but. You know the pro. You know, like one of the reasons I like our movement, the ARC, is because my pastor Ray Nethery, who is a man with a big reputation in many circles, if you ever went to his house, he still heats it with firewood. <laughs> you know, like he doesn't even have like a furnace. He has a bur- and and he drives like a he a used old Buick, not because he couldn't do better, but because we choose in our in our movement we choose. I, we don't want any of the, like Proverbs says, don't let me be in want and profane your name. Like we want all of our pastors to be able to pay their bills and not be in debt and so forth. But we don't care if they're missing the drywall on their walls because they can't afford the drywall. You know, like, you know, like they can drive lousy cars and have $10 shirts that I got at Walmart and, and I don't have any $4 million houses like Joel Olstein or whatever. Now, I normally, by the way, don't mention people by names. I will mention them if they are actually not Christian, and neither of those are. None of those three are Christians, even though they're regularly on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which is an irony of all ironies. Many non-Trinitarian ministers who don't believe in the Trinity are on Trinity Broadcasting Network all the time. So these things matter.